0: This week and every week on the media is a labor of love. But this week, it's also a love letter to labor. The Great Resignation is still here. We predict it'll still be here through
1: the summer.
2: The office, historically, it's been very good in convincing you that your life is actually the time that you spend in that office. So what happens when that ceases to be the case? they've laid you off six months after they've told you that you've joined the family. And it's like your family doesn't have
3: mass layoffs once a year, where you evaluate Aunt Susan and decide like, oh, Aunt Susan's fired. I think what we have to
1: do is listen to the complaints that people have, to the struggles they're facing, and think about reshaping work along those lines, rather than just assuming technology's just going to solve the question for us.
0: The Great Resignation. The office gets a makeover and sabotage at the plant From WNYC in New York, this is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. In this month's jobs report, one morsel of data did stick out. The country's active workforce is back to within 1% of what it was in February 2020, pre-pandemic. But if that's true... What happened to this? It's being called the
4: Great Resignation. A record number of Americans are telling their bosses, I quit. Wages increased again last month as companies tried to attract new employees. And restaurant owners are taking a double hit, a shortage of workers and skyrocketing
3: costs. The healthcare sector has lost more than half a million jobs since the start of the pandemic. Factories don't have enough workers. Even farms are dealing with labor shortages. Weren't we
0: all taking our cardboard boxes and out en masse, when the term the Great Resignation was coined, the explanations varied. Burnout, retirement, stimulus checks, childcare, health and safety, even, get this, happiness. But nowadays, are Americans really still packing it in? Some say yes.
4: Just ahead, back to work. As thousands return to
3: work, employers are still challenged by the Great Resignation.
0: Look, the Great Resignation is still
1: here. We predict it'll still be here through the summer. Millions of people quit their jobs in December. You know,
0: who quits in December? Others say, well, just some of us.
1: You're still seeing it, particularly in that millennial kind of generation. There still is a lot of movement because there's a lot of opportunity.
0: Still others say the great resignation has shifted into the great remorse.
5: A new survey shows many people who changed jobs are now having quitters' remorse. Millions of Americans decided during the pandemic that their current job was not good enough but a survey by The Muse found that 75% of the 2,500 job seekers polled admitted their new jobs are not what they thought they would be.
0: Some even predict employers might flip the script entirely.
2: Do you think we're gonna see more companies slashing their valuations and potentially
1: going through these mass layoffs?
3: Yeah, Emily, so I truly think that we're about to see a 180 reverse of the great resignation. Truly,
0: the moral arc of work is long, but shouldn't it bend toward fairness and equity? Some months back, we spoke with journalist Sarah Jaffe, author of the book, Work Won't Love You Back. And she argued that the deal propered by Henry Ford, security and a certain amount of ease in exchange for boring or dangerous work, was withdrawn half a century ago and replaced by the notion that you should love your job as a source of fulfillment. That, says Jaffe, was never in the worker's best interest. All this was finally stripped bare by the pandemic, which is why we have what some have mischaracterized as the Great Resignation.
3: So for most of capitalism, the industrial work that made up the backbone of the system was miserable. It's hard, it's grinding, it's exhausting, it breaks your body. So there's essentially a deal struck between bosses and employees. The work probably sucks, but we're going to pay you all right, and you're going to have a weekend and you're going to probably be able to buy a house. And this idea that you will find pleasure in your work was relegated to the sidelines. It was there for sort of critics of the system, like English artisan William Morris, who was both a maker of beautiful Mm prints and also a radical socialist who was writing critiques of the system. He argued that people should get pleasure in the work itself, as well as the fruits of their labor, that that would actually be a more equal and a more just and less miserable society. We don't get that. We get a place to live, the ability
0: to support a family, an occasional vacation, a weekend. Those basics were something that workers were willing to pay for with eight-hour, five-day work weeks.
3: Right. And that was not that historically long a period of time that that ruled. But it is this thing that still has a really solid hold over our imaginations because it gave us some expectation that we would be fairly remunerated for our work. The 1970s brings us a crisis of profits, essentially, where workers are getting an increasing piece of the pie and suddenly the pie stops growing. And this has all sorts of reasons, everything from an oil crisis to political changes. But employers start outsourcing the factory jobs. We no longer want to pay people an ever-growing slice of the pie. Something replaces those jobs. Teachers, care workers, retail workers, restaurant workers. And that work already existed and already had a different set of expectations for emotional labor and things like that. And also, you know, the cool knowledge jobs where you get to sit around talking on the radio about the book that you wrote, uh, which are a minuscule part of the economy, really. Those jobs, too, are expanding. And those, too, come with a different expectation that you will like it. You should be grateful for it. Mm -hmm. And so one of the reasons that I think it's interesting to talk about this history is just to remind people that it's not always been this way and it's still not this way for every worker you know i went to indiana to go report on the carrier factory closing after you know donald trump and bernie sanders had made a big deal out of it on the campaign trail in 2016 and i was talking to workers and i was like what are you going to miss about the job and they all looked at me like i had three heads <laughs> you know the paycheck <laughs> Maybe they were going to miss their buddies and the the union and going to the bar after work for a round of beers before they go home. But like nobody was like, oh, I'm really going to miss standing at the machine for 12 Mm -hmm. hours a day no, I'm going to miss $26 an hour plus overtime is what I'm going to miss. They had
0: been roped in by the Fordist Compromise, which receded in the 70s. And then we got neoliberalism or post-Fordism, or as you say, late capitalism, a world of fewer social services, fewer worker protections, jobs going offshore, and workers begging for them to stay. You quote Joshua Clover in his book saying, labor is locked into the position of affirming its own exploitation under the guise of survival. And you say that Mm -hmm. was a short step to the labor of love. Explain that.
3: Yeah. So one of the things that's been fascinating about the strikes this year is that we've seen a lot of strikes in manufacturing, which is a place we haven't seen that many of them in recent years because workers have been too busy trying to keep those plants open. Again, I revisit the carrier plant, um, the Lordstown GM plant in Ohio, where factories are closing down and the workers are desperately trying to save them. The striking thing about the carrier plant actually was sort of on either side of it. There's an Amazon warehouse and a Target warehouse. You look around and you know what the jobs that you're going to get are. When the factory closes, you're going to be making $15 an hour if you're lucky, which doesn't pay the mortgage on the house you bought with $26 an hour. And so you go from being able to strike, shut down production, make demands for more, like the workers at John Deere did this summer, to begging your employer not to shut the factory down entirely and move it to Mexico, to Bangladesh, to Vietnam, to China. So that creates a very different relationship to the job and to the employer. And that connects really easily to this idea that was already proliferating in other forms of work that we love our jobs, that we're grateful for our jobs, that our jobs give us meaning and fulfillment and pride. So,
0: this idea of love, roll back again to the 70s. You quote Margaret Thatcher saying, Who's society? There's no such thing. There are individual men and women, and there are families. And the implication is. Work is an extension of family, so you should
3: love it and be prepared to sacrifice for it. Yeah, one of the things that was fascinating when I was reporting my book was I expected to hear a lot of family talk in caring workplaces, in hospitals, in healthcare, in teaching, maybe in arts institutions. I didn't expect to hear it so much where I did, which was actually the video games industry. Ha! Games workers were always hearing it. Literally one company that I reported on in the book refers to itself on its website as a (laughs) fam Right. And I know about this company because it fired one of its workers for organizing. But, you know, I, I was speaking to the games workers. And Kevin Aguazza, who's the the person that I base my video games workers chapter on, he was joking about, you know, you move halfway across the country to take a new job at the games company, and then there are these mass layoffs every year. And so they've laid you off six months after they've told you that you've joined the family. And it's like, your family doesn't have mass layoffs once a year, you know, where you evaluate like Aunt Susan and decide like, oh, nope she's out now. No more part of the family. Um, Firing your family is very, very difficult. Firing your workers is very, very easy. One of the things that happens when you have this incredible pressure for everything to sort of be on your individual back is that it becomes all about your individual achievement, your individual relationships with your job, your individual sort of utility maximizing, your ability to keep an eye out for the next good job and jump as soon as it comes along. That kind of pressure, among other things, it really militates against having these conversations with your coworkers of realizing that actually we're all in the same boat here. So it disrupts collective action. Right, exactly. It tells you that the solution, if you don't love your job, is to go find a job you do love rather than to try to make your job better. And that is, I think, the most sort of useful thing that the the labor of love story does for employers at large. It tells us that it's all on us.
0: And with the decline of of the factory job, of the industrial job, with a decent Mm -hmm. wage, you've got this reliance on love and the jobs that are now proliferating are care jobs health jobs mm-hmm. and so on and they in particular can engender burnout
3: yeah the the thing about burnout which has become a sort of buzzword these days is that the term and the condition originally come out of research on caring workers, on doctors and nurses, that doctors and nurses who were burned out were losing that motivation of caring about their work, that they just couldn't bring themselves to care anymore. But what is burnout to the factory worker who maybe never really cared that much about the drill that you lift however many times an hour to do your part on the assembly line. It's very hard to feel like intrinsically motivated about that, even though you might feel pride in the car that you help build and in the money that you bring home. Burnout essentially becomes a problem of the labor of love. I
0: remember talking to a therapist who talked about something that was in the 60s called stewardess syndrome, where Mm -mm. uh, you had to smile even when sleazy business people were touching you or pulling at your skirt. And you had to really convey a love for your job and a kind of happy subservience. And that Mm -hmm. the emotional toll it took was devastating.
3: Right. And this is very interesting because actually the research that sociologist Arlie Russell Hochschild did that led her to come up with a concept of emotional labor was on flight attendants, And it was on that very particular thing that you're talking about, that work of suppressing how you really feel when like the creepy guy in first class puts his hand on your butt to keep smiling and be like, can I get you a scotch, sir, even though I want to murder you? That's work. I was rereading this wonderful article from, again, early on in the pandemic at Tribune magazine by Polly Smythe, and she was a retail worker. And the piece was called How COVID Turned Cashiers into Carers. And she told this haunting story of handing a customer his change through the little hole in the plexiglass that was supposed to prevent them from breathing on each other. And this customer reached out and took her hand and just held on to it. And she writes, after about 10 seconds, he let go, looked down at the floor and said, I'm very sorry. The thing is, I live alone. Every customer at the checkout counter, you have to smile at and all of that. But then how much harder is that when you're realizing that this customer hasn't like touched a human in weeks? Mm -hmm. That story just, it haunts me because it's such a perfect example of, of how much harder these jobs got in maybe ways that we didn't even think about. Does work ever love you back? I mean, work is just not a thing that can love you. And even if you have a great boss, and look, I've had great bosses, that doesn't take away from the pressures that every employer will face. And the fact that at the end of the day, they sometimes have to make a choice that isn't the best for me because it's the best for the business. Mm -hmm. And that is just a fundamental thing that isn't solvable necessarily by your boss being nicer. It's solvable by, you know, changing these relationships. Between the worker and the work. Right. And that's a big, broad social relationship that gets changed at the top by economic systems and public policy. There is a limited amount of life hacks that can solve this problem. And the shifting from one job to the next can absolutely change your life for the better. But it's also still gonna be a job. Sarah, thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Jaffe is a TYPE
0: Media Center fellow and author of Work Won't Love You Back, How Devotion to Our Jobs Keeps Us Exploited, Exhausted, and Alone. Up next in this hour about work, the architecture of the office and what it tells us about the past and future of our working lives.
4: This is On the Media. On the Media is brought to you by ZBiotics. Tired of wasting a day on the couch because of a few drinks the night before? ZBiotics Pre Alcohol Probiotic is here to help. ZBiotics is the world's first genetically engineered probiotic, invented by scientists to feel like your normal self the morning after drinking. ZBiotics breaks down the byproduct of alcohol, which is responsible for rough mornings after. Go to zbiotics.com slash OTM to get 15% off your first order when you use OTM at checkout. ZBiotics is backed with 100% money back guarantee, so if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they'll refund your money no questions asked. That's zbiotics.com slash OTM and use the code OTM at checkout for 15% off.
5: While some colleges ramped up police presence on campus, others responded to protests against Israel's war in Gaza by giving students a seat at the table. I'm Kai Wright, and on the next Notes from America, meet a young negotiator from Brown University. We'll explore what divestment actually means and how views of victory in this movement vary depending
4: on where you sit. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.
0: This is On The Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. In 1975, fewer than three million people worked from home in the U.S., and a third of those workers were farmers. Major shifts in the economy, a global pandemic, and a few minor technological breakthroughs later, that number has surged into the tens of millions, according to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics. Nowadays, American teleworkers skew upper income and highly educated. Journalists Anne Helen Peterson and Charlie Warzel work from home, and that's where together they wrote their book on the promise and problems of this very phenomenon called out of office. When the pandemic struck in 2020, the couple found themselves grappling as workers with feeling caught between all the liberating and oppressive effects of tech and design. Warzel, for instance, found himself consumed at all hours by the messaging app Slack, which, by the way, was supposed to make work easier,
5: much like email was intended to. Back when email was first invented and codified in the office, it was supposed to kill the memo. And the memo was that cluttering amount of paper that was always being passed around and all this time you had to spend photocopying it, etc. And so as the whole process of duplicating and replicating became easier due to the technology, people are sending tons of emails when they don't really need to. So Slack comes along and says, listen, Your inbox is almost beyond saving, and organizations are wasting all this time replying to emails, and it's not instantaneous. There's still that lag time between sending and receiving. What if we reorganize the way that we work? Ergo, Slack. And Slack is not only to kill email, but it's a big part of of the marketing. Anyhow, Slack has not killed email. And I'm sure your inbox is hectic, just like all of ours. What Slack did was it created yet another channel to check, another thing. So you don't save time? (laughs) (laughs) You save time in certain interactions, but people are also going to message you more frequently just simply because it's easier. We're just adding things on because people are always looking for new ways to show that they are being productive.
0: (laughs) So long before Slack... There was another efficiency trap, the gilded cage of the open office, introduced in 1958 as an office landscape, or as I like to call it, (laughs)
5: Bürolandschaft.
2: I'm so happy you (laughs) pronounced it and didn't make me
5: pronounce it. I had to pronounce it for the audiobook, and it was a nightmare.
2: I don't think he did it as well as you did. So (laughs) I am so fascinated by the history of the open office because I think most people think that it was designed first and foremost as like a tool to torture workers, when really it was meant to make workers' lives easier. The places where it was first implemented and first designed, a lot of these were very old office buildings that as they've hired more people, you place one person in this building and then another person who should be sitting right next door to them is actually like across several office buildings. And so they decided, like, what if we completely reorganize this put people who are working in similar sectors and similar projects close to one another to ease the communication, and then also get rid of the sort of corner offices and the hierarchies that were very standard within offices.
0: But there are no walls. (laughs) It's so noisy.
2: (laughs) This is important to note. The original plans had these dividers that were not like what we think of in terms of cubicles, right? They were much more at at odd angles and there were plants all over the place to create natural sound barriers. So it's not the high ceiling open office that has become so standardized. It's fascinating because...
0: In Germany, in Scandinavia, and the Netherlands, you wrote that the experience of working in the open office design was so miserable that in the 70s, local worker councils mandated their removal, <laughs> but not here in the U.S. The architecture <gasps> critic James Russell, you quote, said that Americans characteristically reworked the plan into something cheaper and more ordered.
2: Yeah, the cubicle. I think that companies realized that this was a massive cost cutter, put the corner offices back in because they were allergic to not having that hierarchy in place. And Mm -hmm. then cut corners when it came to these dividers and like the expensive plants that would have been used to group people within these larger spaces. And they just put in cubicles, which I find to be very isolating you're like really by yourself in this open office space it's the worst of both worlds like being lonely in a city yes
0: you guys cited a study that showed these open formats actually created more inefficient workers google was probably thinking about that when it designed a new kind of workspace that was more akin to a college campus what issues do you think the designers sought to address.
5: One of the founders of Google was actually trying to replicate the campus environment from, uh, I believe, Stanford and especially the way that the engineering students would get together. And even if they weren't working on the same thing, they would be within arm's reach to have collaboration. The space was designed to really funnel people to work in different types of environments, right? Not everyone works really well at a desk. Some people want to recline in a beanbag chair, right? Some people like to work in a really dimly lit space with a lot of people around them. Uh, Some people just simply want to work in the bustle of a cafeteria. There's multiple workspaces, but also also, lots of points for people to do either solo or collaborative work. And probably the biggest part was that campus feeling. And so that idea it is a place where you go and all of your needs are met. And that includes socialization, food, your transportation to and from, sometimes even sleeping.
2: <laughs> and working out. <laughs> yeah, gyms, but also climbing walls, sports leagues, like everything is right there to envelop your life. The Googleplex was
0: half a million square feet in Mountain View, California. The unifying goal of the design apparently was self-sufficiency. But the guy who designed it, Clive Wilkinson, apparently has some misgivings about what he helped design.
5: Yeah, I mean, it's incredibly influential piece of architecture because you know obviously the success of Google as a corporation leads to so many people wanting to mimic that. And so when I kind of put this to him and and said it's a space where you end up spending all your time and essentially live at work. I don't know if it's if it's necessarily misgivings but I think it was a realization from him that this really could be abused and it has led to perhaps a different culture than he imagined. A culture of extreme overwork and commitment and identification with one's job, right? Because it's not just that you spend a lot of time there. It's also that you make friends there. You could be sitting there having a beer in the cafeteria with a bunch of your friends, but they're also your coworkers. So are you working? Are you not working? It becomes very difficult to even tell.
2: The way that I often think of it is that you are pumping up one muscle in your body, like let's say your left bicep. By spending all of your time and all of your resources and all of your friend making energy, all of it is is directed towards work and people that you know from work. And you're letting the other muscles in your body, (laughs) let's say your entire right arm, (laughs) atrophy. Like It's just just, there's nothing there. And what happens in that scenario is like, oh, my left bicep looks amazing, but there's nothing else to fall back on you don't have any food in your fridge, so why would you go make food for yourself and invite people over? You don't know anyone outside of work. This, of course, really benefits the corporation, that your loyalty, your identity is really caught up in them and what they can offer. So what
0: about Twitter? You cited as a company that's grappling with the dark side of the Googleplex office model, trying to formulate some sort of hybrid, which removes some of the perks of the office to level the playing field for people who work remotely and people who work on site.
5: All these tech companies, as a way to attract talent, created the most attractive amenities environment as they could. At Twitter, one of them, especially in their office in downtown San Francisco, is an amazing kitchen, espresso bars, and all, all kinds of wonderful things. I've, I've been there a few times. The food is fantastic. <laughs> and it's all free. The people we spoke to there realized that, well, that's a big perk. And it feels, you know, if you're choosing to work from home where your meals are not paid for, that you're leaving something on the table. So when they're looking at actually trying to create a hybrid environment that doesn't incentivize people to come into the office or doesn't penalize people who choose to work remotely. It means you have to make work less appealing. Are they closing their kitchen? This, to my knowledge, was the plan. I don't know how it's been implemented. The kitchen is one element of it, but there's other ones that are smaller but just as important. And one of them is when people go into a conference room for meetings, everyone at Twitter has to turn their laptop on so that the camera and the microphone are easily accessible because there's a number of people who've been odd person out in a meeting being remote where the camera's positioned very strangely. You can't see everyone in the room. One person's impossible to hear. And it creates this tax on people who choose not to come in. This seems uncharacteristically
0: unmindful of efficiency or profit.
2: Or (laughs) do they just know that most of that's a bunch of bull anyway. I think at tech companies in particular, there's very clear expectations about what deliverables are. And this is part of the reason why many tech companies, not all, but many tech companies, were pretty comfortable with people working remotely before. Mm-hmm. Because if you have clear expectations about the sort of work that needs to be performed and people are doing that work, then you don't care where it's happening. The only people who care (laughs) are people who don't do that work, right? And whose job is less legible. And this is oftentimes managers. Their job is oftentimes just supervising. So how do you supervise? How do you make that visible? It's a lot harder. But tech companies actually understand that it is efficient to let people design their own workday and their own work rhythms. And seeing that borne out over the course of the pandemic.
0: Is that why Dropbox, the cloud storage company that's based in San Francisco, decided back in
2: October last year to become a virtual first organization? They also decided to, I think, do a pretty dramatic reorganization of how their company worked. And one of the ways that they could do that alongside being a remote first organization is is figure out, okay, we don't need offices where people can go every single day. But we do understand that some of our workers are going to want collaborative space. So we'll put together kind of studios in four of the cities where our workers are clustered. Some of those cities are in the United States. I think one is in Amsterdam. But the really interesting thing, and I think the smartest thing about this plan, is that it's not a space for just putting your butt in a seat and being present. It is specifically designed as a place to do collaborative work. So mm-hmm. you have that space to do the, the water cooler stuff that is a little bit less spontaneous, but you don't have this sort of obligatory showing your face just to show your face understanding of what work is.
0: We focused on the architecture of the office, but this is really about work and about life and the intersection of the two.
2: Yeah. One cheesy thing we say about our book is that it's not about where you work. It's about how you work and how you think about work in your life. The thing about the office historically is it's been very good in convincing you that your life is actually the time that you spend in that office and that it is the primary gravitational pull in your life. So what happens when that ceases to be the case?
5: There's a thing about remote work a lot of people try to gloss over because they want it. But the truth is that it's, it's harder. It is logistically more challenging to have a bunch of people spread out than it is to have them in one space. In order to succeed, you have to be very intentional. You have to design it with the best interest of everyone in an organization, but especially the workers in mind. And in doing that, you design something that's more human It can only work with truly understanding who your workers are as people. I think that is why remote work is a really good Trojan horse for a lot of these (laughs) bigger ideas about what is it that we value? Who do we want to be? How do we want to spend this limited time that we have, you know, here on earth? And do we want to spend it in service of a company? We should just always be asking ourselves those questions because we we only have one life here, (laughs)
0: Charlie, Anne, thank you so much.
5: Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you. This is
2: such a pleasure.
0: Charlie Warzel and Anne Helen Peterson are the authors of Out of Office, the big problem and bigger promise of working from home. Coming up, being a Luddite doesn't make you a technophobe. It just means you can see a little further around the corner. This is On the Media. This is On the Media. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Anne Helen Peterson and Charlie Warzel showed how the tech that was supposed to liberate office workers has trapped them instead into an endless cycle of performative tasks. But that's just a piece of that picture. Gavin Mueller, who teaches media studies at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, says tech has changed the relationship between workers and work in countless ways and rarely with the worker in mind. Though we don't always remember it that way. The rebellious weavers of 19th century England took on the name of the mythical King Ludd as a badge of honor. Now it's an insult.
1: You're like a Luddite. You're like a guy who doesn't like technology anymore. You
0: gotta. I would just say to all the Luddites in the room who don't want to see new technology. In the
3: Luddite, That's a Luddite idea. That is going backward in time.
0: In his book, Breaking Things at Work, The Luddites Are Right About Why You Hate Your Job, Mueller makes the case that the Luddite workers weren't technophobes, but rather tech savvy pioneers.
1: These are skilled craftspeople. So they're very good at using technology, in fact, and very perceptive about what the effects of technology will be on their trade. And they immediately perceive that these new factory technologies create textiles of lower quality, that lower wages, and undermine entire communities of families, towns, regions. And in fact, that is ultimately what happened to these places. To see the Luddites as somehow irrational, we can only do that from the vantage point of 200 years later thinking that what happened to them was sort of inevitable and they should have just given up. I think if you were in their position, uh, you would probably do something similar to what they did.
0: And what exactly did they do and how did they manage to organize themselves to do it?
1: They would go on these kind of midnight raids and smash up gig mills and stocking frames. But they actually engaged in a lot of other practices. You know, they would uh, have protests, they would have strikes. But one thing that I think is really valuable to think about was how these practices of machine breaking required a deep community solidarity that really shifted the balance of power.
0: For a while, at least, you said it worked, the factory owners were terrified, and wages went up. But then they sent in the troops. (laughs)
1: More troops than they had fighting Napoleon on the continent, and they were able to crack down effectively on the rebellion. But this kind of militant opposition to technology doesn't stop, even if the Luddites themselves lost the battle. In fact, you had similar kinds of rebellions in France. They actually were so successful that factories closed for another 20 years, and they didn't even try to use those machines until the next generation.
0: It is interesting, the international element of this. A hundred years after the Luddites took action, the Industrial Workers of the World, which was a massive organization of transient workers and unemployed people in the U.S., published pamphlets on the power of sabotage.
1: There was this flourishing of interest in the Wobblies, which was a kind of interesting, vibrant milieu of these grassroots activists and militants and workers. The Wobblies were members of the industrial workers of the world. Exactly. And something that these Wobbly writers shared with the Luddites is they said, well, sabotage can be something that workers do. But this is a kind of parallel response to what they called capitalist sabotage, which is when... Rotten food was put out for sale or products were adulterated, right? This is the same time that Upton Sinclair is writing The Jungle. You have really poor quality, in some cases dangerous and deadly, products being sold. And so they said, well, if they can sabotage people in the name of profit, we can conduct sabotage in the name
0: of attacking their profits. During the Depression, you write that the international workers of the world initially held up some hope for technocracy, but eventually the group tired of these visions you wrote. (laughs) They do not have a program for accomplishing things, wrote the IWW, and they completely exclude the class struggle, so there's nothing left to discuss there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so by the 1930s, the IWW wasn't what it used to be. Membership had dropped off quite a bit, and there was this weird out-there intellectual movement speculation about we'll have a fully automated society technology will solve all of our problems this movement called the technocracy movement interestingly still kind of around at least they have a website but ultimately the people behind that movement didn't really have a kind of politics they held out a lot of visions of technology will erase work people will be out of work, what should we do? They had ideas around you know, state support, transition to a new mode of production, things that people are writing books about today. But for the Wobblies, they said, our politics are the politics of class struggle. Because fundamentally, You're in capitalism, which means there's an antagonism between bosses and workers, and all politics has to flow from that. And I think that is also something we need to think about in our current moment, right? It'd be really nice to say, oh, yeah, we have the technology. It could give abundance to everyone, but it's not going to come to us purely out of the development of technology. It's only going to come from some kind of political struggle.
0: You see the tactics of sabotage today. Specifically, I'm thinking of the uh, American farmers who broke their John (laughs) Deere tractors, or at least the software in those tractors.
1: Yeah, it's such a wonderful story. The new version of John Deere tractors are loaded with software, just like anyone's automobile is, right? You've got these computers and all these things. Mm-hmm. The problem was you were unable to access and repair the tractor unless you had a licensed USB drive. So you had to go to a particular John Deere licensed repairer and that meant you couldn't repair your tractor yourself even if you knew how you couldn't go to someone else unless they were licensed by John Deere and of course John Deere is going to you know charge premium prices for that
0: Right. Deer charged $230 plus $130 an hour for the technician to drive out and plug in the connector.
1: You know you're getting a raw deal here.
0: Infuriating. So
1: they they went online and they said, look, is there any way we can get around this software? And they ended up finding pirated software. I think it was Estonian hackers that created it, installed that, and used it to essentially jailbreak their tractors, the way that you might jailbreak your iPhone to put on an app or something that's not on the Apple Store. And now you have members of Congress saying, wow, this is actually really not fair at all. Maybe we should regulate what's going on in these industries. So I think that shows the power of this Luddite perspective on technology.
0: Yeah, it started the uh, right to repair movement. The right to repair
1: movement, right, yeah.
0: But you identify somewhat More dubious protests as Luddite sabotage, too. On Reddit, for example, there's a wave of users who give each other tips on how best to (laughs) shoplift in order to get back at retailers for forcing them to use self-checkout. They're essentially enabling each other to steal. How do you see this as Luddism?
1: Reddit took the forum off. But what was really interesting to me is not just the sharing of tips and tricks, you know, scan your organic stuff as regular, get a little discount for yourself. But the way that people justified it, they said, look, these self-checkouts got installed in my grocery store I didn't agree to it, and all of a sudden, instead of someone else scanning my stuff, bagging my stuff, I've got to do it myself. I'm essentially working for the company. Someone had that job. They don't have it anymore, and now I'm doing the work. If they're going to get me to do free labor for them, then I'm justified in getting a little discount on my bananas or uh, getting a free steak here and there. We have to take matters into our own hands. And— Some kind of wider challenge. Maybe it would be enough to get the cashiers to come back. Again, this stuff is not
0: inevitable. That happens sometimes. Now, you see the free software movement as the great example of Luddism succeeding in the here and now, right?
1: So, the free software movement Mm -hmm. was born in the early days of software programming. If you were into computers, you were part of this niche subculture and to learn how to operate your PC that you built from a kit. You had to talk to other people who were making software. You had to borrow their programs, look at their code, change their code, and that was how people learned how to program, right? And so when personal computing starts to grow, some people are saying, well, software can be a market, something that we sell rather than something that people have to kind of make themselves. Bill Gates wrote an infamous letter to this computer hobbyist club saying, you're stealing my stuff. Ironically enough, Bill Gates himself stole quite a lot of what became Windows from other places, but we don't need to go there now. (laughs) U.S. Supreme Court decided it was copyright that would govern software. So these practices that this first generation of hackers and programmers were used to would have been gone, illegal. And so what these people did, led by this eccentric figure, Richard Stallman, is they said, well, what if we had our own intellectual property licenses that we would paste on top of copyright? Because copyright is automatic. And these licenses actually relinquish my exclusive right to this software. Anyone else is allowed to borrow my code, change it, customize it with one provision. They also have to abide by those rules for whatever they produce. Mm -hmm. So that means that free software would beget more free software and you would develop an entire ecosystem. And that would preserve these grassroots craft traditions within computer programming. And did it
0: work? The
1: biggest success and one that maybe some of the listeners out there recognize is the Linux Linux. operating system. Started by a teenager sending a message out and saying, hey, does anyone want to do an open source operating system? And hundreds and thousands of people said, yes, we want to help out. Let's make it. But even if you're out there and you're like, I don't know anything about free software. I just use the programs that are already on my computer. Free and open source software in many cases, had higher-quality, customizable products at the end of the process. Your modem or your router is probably got some free and open-source software running on it right Mm -hmm. now. One reason why programmers still have a great deal of autonomy, I don't have to have a degree if I'm good enough, I can live in Berlin for six months if I want, (laughs) and make a lot of money. The reason why programmers have that ability is precisely because they were able to carve out this space of autonomy. Mm. They didn't let Microsoft control that profession. But I do think it's one really recent example of a kind of Luddite perspective.
0: And your book wasn't, at least initially, just a response to how Luddites have been miscast and misremembered. It was inspired by all the renewed discussion about automation in the workforce.
1: Yeah, so there was uh, a lot of discussion seven or eight years ago from economists, from people working in industry, wow, we're going to automate a lot of different jobs and those people that work in those positions, they're going to be out of luck. So what is going to happen? But you also have this kind of interesting moment in leftist and progressive politics of people saying, well, maybe that's not so bad. Sure, in our current world, it's really bad not to have work because we need wages to live. But what if this was a kind of leverage to enter a new society where we don't have to work to live? And that automation, creating greater wealth, could actually be a vehicle for a post-capitalist politics.
0: I don't understand (laughs) that logic. You don't get leverage – if you don't have something to hold over the heads of the people who are making all the money. Automation in the 50s caused a huge wave of unemployment in the black community. Automation had a huge impact on housewives. I mean, historically, washing machines were a huge deal, but it did actually increase the workload overall of the homemaker.
1: I agree 100% with you, Brooke. The way that automation works is not simply it gets rid of work. It redistributes work, and it changes the approach to work in a variety of different ways. Sometimes, yes, jobs are eliminated. In other cases, jobs are de-skilled and degraded. In the case of the housewives, new technologies, rather than saving them work, expectations rose. So they were still doing just as much work as before. In fact, the only thing that's gotten women to spend less time on chores is burden sharing with their partners. So it's actually feminism that saved Mm -hmm. women, not technology.
0: And yet the people that you are talking about seem to be echoing John Maynard Keynes, who predicted his grandchildren would work only 15 (laughs) hours a week due to technological advance. That Technology is not only inevitable, but it's inherently good for workers, even if it's carried forward by the likes of tech billionaires.
1: Right. If you think that the technology itself is neutral and it's like, well, sure, when it's Bill Gates in charge, that's bad. But maybe, you know, if it's Bernie Sanders in charge, it could be different. (laughs) These technologies have a politics already. And a better approach to take is to understand the impact from the perspective of the people who are being affected by. it. It. I think what we have to do is take seriously how to make work dignified, safe, to allow people to be creative and fulfilled, to listen to the complaints that people have, to the struggles they're facing, and think about reshaping work along those lines, rather than just assuming technology is just going to solve the question for us.
0: Tech is a form of power that can actually disempower workers. You wrote that one of my goals in writing this book is to turn Marxists into Luddites. My argument boils down to this. To be a good Marxist is to also be a Luddite. And while I want to make Marxists into Luddites, I also have another goal. I want to turn people critical of technology into Marxists. Technology
1: is developed under capitalism, right? There's a lot of dissatisfaction with technology out there. People hate Facebook. People are concerned about climate change. But the response to that can vary quite a lot. I want people to see that the problems of technology are part of the problems of the economic system in which that technology is being developed.
0: Well, isn't it generally good if it isn't used to disempower workers? I mean, vaccines?
1: Well, I'm not opposed to vaccines. I'm not opposed to all technologies. (laughs) But I think you have some examples. For instance, the Soviet Union, right? Oh, we're for the workers. But, you know, we, we also need to make stuff. So we'll just use existing technologies. And what happened was, well, the workers were disempowered. Workers were unhappy at work. Workers engaged in sabotage at work. There was a lot of problems with that production process because they had a brief debate, but ultimately decided that what they needed to do is develop the productive forces. You see something similar in China. I mean, it's playing out in a different way, and they've done some impressive things there. But people work incredibly hard doing really degrading jobs.
0: How do you determine when a technology is good? There's an endless history of unintended consequences.
1: Of course. Someone who I think is really interesting Marxist thinker on work and technology is Harry Braverman, who was himself a factory worker and goes on to become a socialist and a writer. And he wrote a book about technology at work. It comes out in 1974. What he says is, you know, why is the technology always about... Management. It's all about scientific management. What if we took a bottom-up perspective? What if we took seriously the way that workers experience their jobs and incorporated their values, their desires, their needs into the technology? Because that's not what happens now, even when it gets branded that way. The way technology is developed is in the interest of accumulation, in the interests of controlling workers. And so he offers – it's a brief moment in this long but very much worth reading book – This is how you have science and technology without saying we just need to go back to nature. We need to, you know, leave industrial society. I don't think that's a a very good solution. (laughs) I like vaccines, okay? Something that I truly believe is if you want to understand how things are made and how to make it better, talk to the people who are involved in that.
0: So if you'd incorporated the weavers in the creation of those industrial frames...
1: You could imagine a world, right, where certain kinds of textile production remained in control of these weaving communities, and they could adopt new technologies, and they did adopt new technologies. What if they had been as successful as the free and open source software hackers? Maybe my genes would last a little longer.
0: (laughs) Gavin, thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me on. Gavin Mueller teaches media studies at the University of Amsterdam in the Netherlands, and he's the author of Breaking Things at Work. The Luddites are right about why you hate your job. And that's the show. On the Media is produced by Micah Loewinger, Eloise Blondio, Rebecca Clark-Calendar, and Max Balton. Xander Ellen writes our newsletter. Our technical director is Jennifer Munson. Katya Rogers is our executive producer. On the Media is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Brooke Gladstone.